Go ahead and take out your Bibles with me this morning. And let's open them again to the book of Romans chapter 5. The book of Romans chapter 5. focus this morning is verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. Um, But we're going to begin reading. This is all uh, one section, so we're going to begin reading verses 12 through 21. Hold on one second. What what am I doing wrong? It is on. (laughs) We'll just use this one. All right, let's, uh, let's begin reading in verse 12. Begin reading in verse 12, and uh, we'll read through verse 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So way back in verse 12, Paul began to make a point. And this was the main point he wanted us to see, and yet in the middle of making his point in verse 12, he interrupted himself he realized that some people might not be tracking with him. They they might not agree with his presupposition. So he had to back up and he had to give evidence for what he was saying. The first part of his point, which he did say in verse 12, was that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now, that that wasn't the main thing he wanted to say. In fact, that was the build-up to the main thing he wanted to say. But he realized in the middle of saying it, he needed to prove it. He needed to stop and make sure we understood that. 
And so that's what he did in verses 13 and 14. And yet even after verse 14, he doesn't come back to his main point. Because he realizes that now that we see that there is this connection between Adam and Christ, right? Adam was the head of the human race, Christ is the head of His people, but He wants us to to understand just how surpassingly glorious Jesus is contrasted to Adam. And so, yes, Adam and Jesus are both federal heads, men who represented others in their actions, but Jesus is far superior to Adam. And so in verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17, he unpacks how superior Christ and His work is to Adam and what Adam did in the garden. And so only now, when we get to verses 18 and 19, does Paul actually return to that main point that he started to make in verse 12. And to make sure that we really get it, he more or less says the same thing twice. That is, verse 18 and verse 19 say almost precisely the same thing, though in different words. Paul is driving this point home. And if we miss everything else that's been said in these verses, we don't need to miss this. So what is it that Paul wants us to understand? Well, look again, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So there was one sin committed by one man. There was the disobedience of one man, namely Adam. And Adam represented all humanity when he entered into covenant with God, and thus his one sin against that covenant was our one sin. Corporate humanity in Adam sinned. And thus the consequences, the curse of God, fell not just upon Adam, but upon man, which is what the name Adam means. When the curse came upon Adam, the curse came upon all mankind. His one trespass led to condemnation, judgment, wrath of God for all men. All humanity under the condemnation of God. We are born headed towards hell. We are born with God's wrath upon us. All people are criminals. All people have broken God's law. And we broke God's law corporately in our representative, Adam. The many were made sinners. Even those not yet born, having done nothing good or bad in their own lives, are sinners, for we sinned in Adam. But there is another man, Jesus Christ. 
And in His one act of righteousness, through that one act of righteousness, justification and life can come to all men. Through the obedience of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Alright, so what is this one act that Jesus did that leads to justification in life? Right? You see that, that term, one act, that He uses? What, what was this one act that Jesus did that leads to salvation for sinners? Well, there is a sense in which everything that Jesus did throughout His entire life and death make up one huge act of submission and obedience to His Father. In all of Christ's obedience, over 33 years accomplished by the Lord Jesus, all of this is given to the account of those who trust Christ. So, in all of those 33 years that Jesus was living perfectly, even all the way to the point of death on a cross, all of that is credited as righteousness to us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it seems probable here that the one act that Paul has in mind is particularly the death of Jesus on the cross. Though Jesus was perfectly obedient to His Father through His entire life, like Adam, Jesus' ultimate test came with a tree. Adam representing His people, the human race, was told to enjoy all that God had given him. Only one prohibition, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam's test, humanity's test, was whether or not Adam would obey God concerning that tree. He failed, we failed. Now Jesus comes as the second Adam. He is the firstborn of the new creation. He now comes representing all His people, the new humanity. Those who from Adam to the end of time will belong to Him. And God gives Christ much to do in His time on earth. But the ultimate test for Christ would have to do with Calvary. Jesus, go to the tree. Allow yourself to be crucified upon the tree by the very people you created. Bear the wrath of your Father on behalf of your people on that tree. Would Jesus be obedient even to the point of death? This was the ultimate test and the salvation of all God's people was at stake. Think with me about the garden of Gethsemane. Think about the great agony that falls upon Christ in the garden. We're told that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. These words refer to inner grief, to internal distress. The man who calmed the stormy waters with His Word, experiencing a storm within His own heart. In the garden, we see Jesus hurting. Not physically, though that's coming, but there's this 
hurt in a much deeper and intense way, an emotional inner anguish so intense that Jesus himself says it feels as though it will kill him. There's something very mysterious, a kind of turmoil of which our worst depressions are only a shadow of what Jesus was experiencing in the garden. Much we talk of Jesus' blood, but how little is understood of His suffering so intense. Angels have no perfect sense. Who can rightly comprehend their beginning or their end? Tis to God and God alone that their weight is fully known. See the suffering Son of God, panting, groaning, sweating blood, boundless depths of love divine. Jesus, what a love was Thine. See, Jesus, having not even gotten to the tree yet, was already experiencing terrible suffering. In fact, He prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Father, is there no other way? Father, if it is at all possible. God, You know everything. You are infinitely wise. If there's any other possible way that You can accomplish Your purpose without me having to endure this, let it be. But of course, that's followed by the humble submission of Christ to His Father. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. I bring us back to the garden to ask this question. What if Jesus had gotten up and fled? What if at that moment, Jesus chose to break that covenant He had made with His Father before time began? What if, as we, as we read the sorrows that Jesus is experiencing in the garden, and we know that the soldiers are coming, Jesus knows the soldiers are coming. As we read of His agony, are we tempted to shout, Jesus, run! Leave! Get out of the garden! You can avoid the cross! Run away! Had Jesus done that, we would have been left to bear our own agony in hell. We would have still had to have drunk the cup of the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus chose to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. This one act is the culminating act of obedience that Paul has in mind. This culminating act of obedience that leads to justification. Sinners being made right with God by faith. Sinners who believe on Jesus are made right with God because of the cross. The cross was the crowning moment of the righteousness of Jesus being accomplished. The righteousness that God gives to us the moment we believe in the, in the books of the courts of heaven when our sins are wiped away and righteousness is written on our account. That righteousness was accomplished by Jesus not running away, but being obedient to a command that was far harder than what Adam had to bear. Through the cross, 
Through Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, remember what Paul was talking about before he first started to make this point back in verse 12, right? Right before Paul was going to make this point about how just as Adam was disobedient and brought, made us all sinners, so Jesus was obedient through this incredible obedience of death on a cross. And because of that, believers are made righteous. Before he was going to make that point, he was saying something. He was saying verse 9. He was saying verse 10. He was saying verse 11. Right? These verses about the cross. These verses that are about Christian certainty. Verses 9, 10, and 11 were about how Christians can look back to the cross, remember what happened there, and have certainty that on the last day, when we stand before Jesus, we will be brought in to paradise. We do not need to fear that Jesus is somehow going to let us down on the day of judgment. Our hope is not going to put us to shame. As we remember the cross, as we remember the extent of what Jesus did there, that this was the hardest thing of all, in light of that, surely He will do the far easier thing of bringing us into heaven on the last day of judgment into eternity. So if that's where, he was, that's where he was, 9, 10, 11, and then how does verses 18 and 19 fit with that? Because that's what he was going to say next in verse 12. So, so how do verses 18 and 19 fit with that? Here's how I think it fits. Verses 18 and 19 fit by saying, here is how we know that on the last day we're going to be okay. Just as Adam's past sin brought us death, Jesus' past obedience has brought us justification. When we look back to the cross and we see what Jesus did, we know what He purchased for us there. He has made us right with God. He has accomplished the perfect righteousness that guarantees that on the last day we will be brought into heaven. Christians, Do not fear the coming of Christ. Eagerly anticipate the coming of Christ. Set your hope on that last day to come. Christians are ready for the last day. Indeed, we rejoice in the hope of the last day when we will be brought into the glory of God itself, when we will behold the glory of God, when we will share in the glory of God by being holy as our Father is holy. We look forward to that. That day is coming. We rejoice in it. We do not fear the end of all things because our Savior's death has brought us life. What Jesus did at the cross accomplished something. It wasn't for nothing. And because I believe that Jesus accomplished something there, I can look ahead with joy and hope and security and peace. Do you see how it fits? Do you see the argument He's making and why it's a glorious Argument. Paul wants us to rejoice. Paul wants us to praise God. 
Now, sadly, this glorious point that Paul is making in verses 18 and 19 often gets overshadowed by controversy. Commentaries. One paragraph on the point of this verse. Pages on the controversy around these verses. All about the last two words of verse 18. All men. Paul's making the comparison with Adam. Adam's sin affected all men. Adam's sin affected all he represented, which was every human being. In the same way, Jesus' obedience affected all men. But what does that mean? Now, in, in my mind, there's no issue here because I, when Paul says that the one act of Jesus leads to justification in life for all men, I think it means the same thing for Jesus that it meant for Adam. That is, Adam, it, Adam's sin led to a curse on everyone he represented. Jesus' life leads to salvation for everyone he represented. That the all men is all who belong to Christ, just as the all men at the beginning of the verse were all who belong to Adam. Paul is not saying that Jesus represented every person in existence on the cross, which is why in verse 19 he changes it to many. He wants us to understand that the all men of verse 18 is referring to a certain kind of person, the person that will be brought into the new creation, those promised to Jesus before the foundation of the world. But... Not everybody sees it that way. And there are two groups of people who have used verse 18 as a proof text for false doctrine. Two groups of people who have used verse 18 as a proof text for false doctrine. Really, verse 18 is the pinnacle of the glorious point that Paul is making about how what Christ did at the cross leads to certainty and security and peace as we look towards the last day. But people have taken this verse and those last two words and used it to totally undermine everything Paul has been saying. So the remainder of my time this morning is going to be spent trying to show you those two views and why I think we must reject them if we're to be mature, sound Christians. And the first false teaching that some people use verse 18 to support is universalism. Everybody say universalism. We've talked about this before. This is the belief that every person who ever lived ultimately goes to heaven. Universalists believe that in the end, when all is said and done, hell will be empty and heaven will be completely full. They believe that no one will be utterly lost, that everyone will be saved. That's universalism. And universalists point to verse 18 and say, don't you see? The verse says that Jesus' act of righteousness leads to justification and life for who? All men. Doesn't that include everybody? Doesn't that mean that the perfect obedience of Jesus leads to everybody in the world being made right with God? 
and having eternal life. Isn't that what the verse says? If you take all men to mean every single individual in the history of the world, then yes. That is what the verse would mean. All people receive justification. Every person is right with God because of Jesus Christ. If all men in this verse means everybody that's ever lived without exception, universalism is true. No one goes to hell. But that cannot be what it means. Why not? Why can that not be what verse 18 means? Well, first of all, if you look at all of the verses around verse 18, when Paul is speaking of those people who benefit from Christ, he speaks of them in a different way. Look at the second half of verse 15. Second half of verse 15. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for everybody. Is that what he says? For many. For many. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience everybody will be made righteous. No. The many will be made righteous. So these other verses do not seem to indicate that every person is going to be saved, but rather that there is a multitude a group called many, and that this many, this multitude, is the all men of verse 18. Now second, we know that this universalist interpretation of verse 18 can't work because the Bible contradicts universalism all over the place. The Bible clearly teaches that God will express His wrath on sinners in hell and that people will have to pay for their sins there. We do not say that flippantly as if it's a small thing. We defend the doctrine of hell knowing that we are people who deserve to be there. But we defend it nonetheless because the glory of God is tied to this doctrine. Universalism cannot be true. The fact that people go to hell sobers us. And we long to see as many people snatched from the flames of hell as possible. But nevertheless, we must affirm and defend the truth that God really does send people there. And even on this Lord's Day, there will be some who breathe their last and who will be headed to such a place. Just a few examples. Revelation 20. John is given a vision of what the last day will be like. And John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, 
Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What did Jesus Himself teach in Matthew 25? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on His left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. On and on we could go with Scriptures that speak blatantly about people going to hell. Matthew 7, 13-14 Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Yes, Jesus died to save many. And the many that will be saved by Jesus' blood are a multitude. But compared to the rest of the world, Jesus says the redeemed will seem few, in a sense. Universalism is a lie. Let me just say that again. Universalism is a lie that allows sinners to be content in their sin while still thinking that they can have the glories of heaven. Thus, all men at the end of verse 18 cannot mean all people everywhere without distinction. It means what Paul meant in all the verses before it and all the verses after it. The many whom Christ represented in His life and death. Now, if you still aren't convinced, just remember that Paul has been teaching us for five chapters now that people are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Does everyone, everywhere, without distinction, have faith in Jesus Christ alone? They do not. And Paul has made it very clear that there is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus. So we must reject universalism. Don't let anybody tell you verse 18 proves the universalist argument. Now, the other false teaching that tries to use verse 18 is Arminianism. So everyone say Arminianism. Arminians say that Jesus died for everybody, but they know that when they say that Jesus died for everybody, if they mean by that that Jesus actually accomplished salvation on the cross for everybody at the cross, they become universalists. So what Arminians do is they say Jesus died for everybody, but He died for everybody in such a way that He actually saved nobody, and it's up to 
everybody in the world to believe. And when we believe, we make ourselves saved through what Christ did at the cross. It's like this. Ten people owe a debt to a bank, and you're one of them. Ten people owe a debt to a bank, and you're one of them. Another man goes to the bank and gives the bank a great sum of money. He then says to the bank, I'm not paying off any person's debt in particular, but whoever comes to you and says, I want that money to be applied to my debt, their debt will be paid. Did this man pay your debt? Not specifically, but if you go to the bank and say, I want my debt to be covered by that man's payment, you'll be covered. According to Arminianism, what Jesus did on the cross was He made a payment that would cover every person's debt with God in the entire world. But it doesn't count for every person in the entire world. It only counts for those who believe. And when that person comes to God and says, I want it to count for me, I believe, then that person is saved. Now, that view might sound familiar to you, because if you're like me, it's pretty much the view that I grew up with and was underneath most of my life growing up. Um, you may even still believe that way right now. But church, I want to argue that that is an unbiblical view. That it is a view that is not true. And let me just mention some of the problems with it. Number one, if Jesus actually suffered the wrath of God, on behalf of all people everywhere without distinction, and yet many of those people never believe, then Jesus suffered a great deal of the wrath of God needlessly. God the Father put His Son through terrible torture for the sins of certain people who will never believe on Christ and will end up having to endure that torture themselves in hell. God punished the same sins twice. Can we believe that? I don't believe we can. And God be a just judge. According to Arminianism, in some sense, a good deal of what Jesus did at the cross was wasted. Second, while Arminians point to verse 18 and say, see, it says all men they miss what comes before those words. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says in verse 18 that Jesus' one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. But according to Arminians, Jesus' one act of righteousness does not lead to justification in life for all men. They demand that all men be everybody, but they also demand that it means that justification in life only comes to some of them. Does that work? Is that what Paul said? He said justification in life come to all men. So whoever the all are, justification in life come to all of them. And so they contradict the very thing that Paul was saying in the verse. And then here's the crucial question. Did Jesus' death on the cross simply make salvation possible? Or did He actually accomplish salvation for His people? 
When Jesus paid the debt to His Father, did He say, I'm doing this so that some people out there might claim it. I'm making salvation possible. Or when He paid the debt to His Father, did He say, I'm paying it, and I'm paying it on behalf of every person I represent, and their debt is now paid. What did Jesus mean when He says, it is finished? The Scriptures make very clear that when Jesus went to the cross, He actually accomplished salvation for the people He represented there. It was Jesus who would later give us faith. It was Jesus who would later bring us to Himself. Jesus knew who His people were. It was already said in the book of the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, as Revelation tells us twice. It was their debt that Jesus paid for. And He paid it in full. John 10.11 I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. Who does the shepherd lay down His life for? His sheep. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Wait a minute. Maybe everybody's a sheep, right? No. Because just a few verses later, Jesus looks at a group of people and says, you do not believe because you're not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These are the sheep for whom the Good Shepherd gave His life. Jesus knows them. He calls them. And when He calls them by the work of the Spirit of God, they hear His voice and they come. But there are some who are not a part of Jesus' flock. Some who at other times Jesus calls them goats. Jesus does not know them the way He knows His sheep. He does not call them the way He calls His sheep. He does not draw them to Himself the way He draws His sheep. They do not follow Him. They do not receive eternal life. They are not of the sheep for which He died. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, you know it well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then in verse 7, Paul says, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Who did Christ redeem through His blood? Who were the ones for whom the redemption price was paid? It was those he's just been talking about in all those verses. Those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that they would be holy and blameless. On and on we could go. Listen to Acts 28. Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Who was obtained by the blood of Christ? Who was the payment made for? The church of God. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. 
Who did Christ give himself up for? His bride. Last example, Revelation 5.9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tongue, tribe, language, people, nation. Who were these people for whom Christ died? They are those of whom He is head. This is what Paul means by all men in verse 18. Adam's sin affected all men of whom He was head. Jesus' obedience affected all men of whom He is head. There has never been nor ever will be a person who makes it to heaven who is not there because He is united to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is the head of His people. All of His people. He died for every single one of them. And for every single one of them, His death leads to justification and life. Now Justin, what about those verses that speak of Jesus dying for the world? Friends, there is a sense in which Jesus died for the world. John 3.16 is true. Whosoever believes shall have everlasting life. I don't deny that for a moment. I rejoice in John 3.16. But Jesus died for everyone in the world in the sense that salvation is open to everyone in the world if they will believe. Now a lot of times... when the Bible uses that language. The emphasis is on Jews. He didn't just die for you. Jews, you are not the people of God by yourself. Salvation is for the world. And we as Gentiles ought to be thankful for that. Now, some people really don't like this teaching that Christ actually accomplished the salvation of His people on the cross and His people only. That there is a sense in which He only died for Christians. Some people don't like this teaching because they want to, in evangelism, be able to look at people and say, Jesus died for your sins. He took your punishment. Now believe on Him. Some people want it. I've heard people argue that you can't do evangelism without that. That you have to be able to say, Jesus died for your sins. Now believe. But when we look to the Bible, we never see that as a way of evangelism. Look at the book of Acts. Does Paul or Peter ever look out at the crowd and say, I can tell you, Jesus died particularly for your sins. Your payment has been made. Now believe. They never say that. Take what they say. Jesus died for sinners. Are you a sinner? Will you believe? It is through faith that you can know that Christ is your head and that the payment made at the cross was for you. All right. This really is the crucial question. Did Christ die for me? Was the righteousness that He accomplished, was it for me? Was He obedient to death so that His obedience would be placed on my account before God? 
Is Jesus my head standing before His Father right now, interceding before His people? Is He interceding for me? The Bible gives us a clear answer. Christ is yours if you believe. If you turn to Christ in faith, if you become a disciple and follow Him, then you can have confidence, certainty, assurance that all that He accomplished, He accomplished for you. Are you one of the sheep for whom Christ died? If so, you will be like a sheep. You will follow your shepherd. You will listen to Him through the Word of God. You will seek to know Him and to be known by Him. Different, a relationship of faith with Jesus is how you can know that you're His. Do you have faith? Are you connected with Jesus through faith? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray.